2: Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. We
1: all know what a wonderful country and a great country Poland is. And it's my honor to have a friend of mine here, President Duda of Poland, who has done an incredible job, and I do believe he has an election coming up, and I do believe he'll be very successful.
3: Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And you just heard Donald Trump welcoming his Polish counterpart Andrzej Duda to the White House just days before Poland's presidential election. We'll get our own preview of that election shortly, and you'll also hear from European Transport Commissioner Adina Valian, who's been at the forefront of some of the big political battles in Brussels related to the coronavirus, such as whether airline passengers should get refunds or vouchers for cancelled flights, But first, let's get straight to our podcast panel. Okay, so it's a warm welcome to our Pan-European podcast panel. Reem Montaz in Paris. Hi, Reem. Hello, hello. Matt Karnichnik in Berlin, examining his device with a, with a puzzled look on his face, the right. recording device. Are you recording? Uh, steady on, steady on. I am <laughs> indeed. Good day. Yeah. Okay, good. Glad to hear that. Um, so uh, let's uh, look ahead to uh, a few things that are, are coming up on the on the calendar. The first of those being the local elections in France, Reims, second round on on Sunday, uh, delayed, of course, by the coronavirus. Uh, you were in Strasbourg this week. Um, you know what should uh, what should our listeners be looking out for on Sunday night when the results come in.
1: So there are a few things to look out for. One is the abstention level, uh, which was uh, historically high during the first round of the of the election because it was at the beginning of basically lockdown. And unusually, uh, the second round of this election is happening later usually it happens like a week later. And so that has kind of thrown off a lot of the dynamics that were at play. Uh, It has also given uh, sort of people who are running for office more time to figure out alliances. And it's also a different kind of campaigning because it has to be socially distanced, because a lot of it has to be done uh, digitally. Um, You know, that was interesting. And that's something that came up when I was in Strasbourg the past few days. Strasbourg is quite a good race to to watch because it could be the only big city that uh, Macron's uh, party, La République En Marche, could win, but it could also be the biggest win for the Greens, who are having uh, quite a bit of momentum in this uh, this election. And what's interesting is that Macron's uh, party has decided to make alliances along uh, what is now referred to as an anti-Green front, And for those who watch French politics, they know that there's been an anti-far-right national rally, national front front when Jean-Marie right, Le Pen... The cordon
3: sanitaire thing, right?
1: Exactly, the cordon sanitaire. We are not talking about a cordon sanitaire, obviously, uh, in this election, but people are referring to it as an anti-green front, even though uh, Macron's party says that they are the real people who really care about the environment and have green policies, and that the Green Party are a bunch of uh, sort of sectarian, dogmatic people who won't be able to properly govern. So these are the fault lines of this of this Election and the stakes are high because even though it's widely expected that Macron's party is going to have a very poor result, uh, Macron is uh, trying to reposition himself and reset his uh, presidential mandate. And if those uh, among his uh, candidates, uh, those who do get elected, are elected because of an alliance with the right-wing conservative party, then that's going to make it harder for him to do his pivot uh, that is supposed to be a more green, more social pivot.
3: Okay, let's see how that uh, plays out. Matt, the other thing that's coming up, which you've been writing about, is that the uh, that Germany is about to take over the rotating uh, presidency of the the Council of the EU at the start of July. And um, what's your impression? Obviously, this is a very different presidency than the one they would have imagined uh, a few months ago. You know, what what are their priorities? What are they hoping to achieve? And maybe what's kind of gone by the wayside?
0: Well, I think they have two immediate priorities. The first being to get an agreement on the recovery fund. The commission's proposal is out there based on the Franco-German proposal for the 500 billion euros in grants. So this is going to be a debate, I think, that's going to dominate the first weeks of the presidency. They've set already, the council has a uh, summit for the middle of July to hash through these issues again. But people here are telling me that it'll probably take you know, much of the summer to work out the details. So I I think, you know, these issues around the Corona Recovery Fund, also, though, the uh, budget itself is something that the Germans really think that they need to complete here, because the recovery fund itself is is connected to the budget. These are very complicated issues. The budget, obviously, even without corona, was a a very contentious uh, subject, as it always is. So I think if they can get that done, they could probably claim success on the presidency. You know, Germany has traditionally been somewhat reluctant to throw its its weight around in the EU. You know, as, as we wrote this week, it does seem that that is, is shifting a little bit, and they're realizing, Merkel has realized, and the people around her, that Germany is the, the only force here that really has the uh, political capital and the influence to kind of take the reins and push these things through. And I think it will probably involve them stepping on some toes, which is something that they've tried not to do in the past. But if there's going to be a time that Germany kind of, you know, loses its uh, reluctance to push other people around, uh, then this is it. And uh, I I think that a lot of people in Europe are hoping that that will be the case too. Um, They still have other issues on the agenda that were always going to be there. The Green New Deal, the decarbonization remains a, a big priority for Germany, obviously. And I think that they want to make progress on that front. And then you have this you know another evergreen, what the Germans call digitalization, the shift, you know, in the economy to, um, you know, more of a, of a digital-driven economy, let's say, um, and I, I think that's something that you know they also want to concentrate on to a degree. But I do think that the Corona economic issues are are going to take center stage and and finally just at at the by the end of the presidency we'll have clarity on what is going to happen with Brexit and uh with, with the UK's trading relationship with with the EU going forward and and this is something that I think that in Berlin right now they're already thinking about they're worried that a lot of people have lost sort of focus on this issue but it is looming
3: Mm. Yeah, and just from a Brussels point of view, it's interesting to to hear that that's what the the Germans expect to have to do. Uh, a lot of that would come with the territory of being uh, of holding the council presidency, but obviously here in Brussels, uh, the person who's meant to be doing the deals, making these things happen, is uh, European Council President Charles Michel, and I think that uh, first summit which you mentioned, Matt. First physical summit that we're going to have had for a number of months uh, here in Brussels is also going to be a big moment um, for him. Obviously, uh, Germany has the influence. Angela Merkel has the stature, but there's also a role for him. And this is, um, you know, this is kind of crunch time for him in a sense. That is his job. He's meant to be the deal maker, the chairman who finds the compromise. And it will be interesting to see, assuming a deal is finally done, who gets the credit for doing it? Because uh, obviously, if it's not him, that's not going to look good, you know, kind of a year into into the job that he was given.
0: Right. And I I think that the Germans would be quite happy for, for him to get the credit. But on, on the other hand, I think that there's going to be, uh, you know, maybe less window dressing here, less, you know, keeping up appearances and more strong arming to get this stuff uh, through because they can't get to the end of this presidency without agreements on these key issues. And if that ends up, you know, hurting the credibility of somebody like Michelle or his office, then then so be it, because you have to act in the greater good. At least that seems to be the opinion that is uh, dominating the discussion here.
3: Yeah, and really the, the clock is ticking, as we've said before here, you know, because getting the deal is really only the start of the process. You have to get it ratified, uh, you know, across uh, the, the member countries and so really if any of this money is going to kind of kick in any time soon and if the budget is going to start in time then certainly what we hear repeatedly here is, you know, this uh, needs to be done very soon. And um, Maybe just finally uh, we we're talking there uh, a bit about the Franco-German proposal that's really at the heart of the Commission proposal and it's interesting that... Uh, Macron and Merkel are going to meet on Monday at Schloss Messberg outside uh, Berlin. Uh, I I just wondered very quickly what both of you make of that because there's nothing... I mean, they're the ones who are in agreement, right? They don't really have anything particularly to thrash out at the moment. They did that at uh, that... um, uh, press conference, which you were at, Reem, where they unveiled the big uh, proposal, uh, the recovery fund. So what do you see, uh, Reem, and I know you will know more later when you have a briefing on this subject, but what do you interpret from, you know, France's decision to to go ahead with this or for this thing to take place at all?
1: I think it's a lot of optics. I think they realise that they're in the sort of the the vital last two weeks before they have to deliver. And I think that for both Macron and Merkel, a lot, they've staked a lot on this. Uh, this Franco-German initiative and on this recovery plan, and you know they they believe that this is what is needed to help shepherd the EU through this uh, unprecedented economic crisis, and it's also uh, you know in in a way it's a constitutional moment for the EU, and it's pushing it forward in a way that is I think quite dramatic. So. Clearly, uh, they both have been working the phones. Even we saw that Macron got on his plane and went to The Hague um, and to meet with Rutte, and it was a very long meeting. Uh, you know, it started at 7.30, and then they didn't break until half past midnight or something like that. Uh, it was a meeting and then a working dinner. Um, so they're clearly doing a full court press. They're, they're both calling all sorts of, of counterparts. Clearly, you know, they're going all out, and I think that on Monday, uh, they want to remind everyone and put up a united front that you know they were able to work out their differences.
3: Mm. Matt, what do you make of it? The last time they met there at uh, Schloss Meseberg, it kind of fell a bit flat, right? It was kind of seen as
0: a bit of a dud afterwards. Yeah. It certainly didn't go as as far as Emmanuel uh, Macron would have liked, and I think that's part of the story here. That the the Franco-German relationship really has been pretty dysfunctional for the last decade. You know, if you take the long view, it hasn't really taking Europe forward. It is very important for Merkel, I think, as this presidency starts to show that she is working hand in hand with the French. Uh, it is sort of, you know, German Staatsräson, as they say. It's very important for, you know, Germany's identity as a uh, leading power in Europe to show that it is cooperating with the French. So I think that, you know, the, this kind of almost ceremonial dinner on the eve of the German presidency is, is meant to to send that message and maybe more immediately to show that, you know, they are going to continue to work together in the coming months to push these measures through.
3: Right. It's maybe almost going to be a Franco-German presidency, but probably not quite. Um, okay, we'll uh, leave it there. Uh, Matt, Reen, thanks very much. Bye-bye. Thank you. And now let's head to Poland. That's a song made by fans of Andrzej Duda, the president of Poland. Not just any fans, they're actually twins. The video is worth seeking out on YouTube. Uh, Duda is up for re-election this Sunday and let's find out more about what's at stake now in that election. We have Politico's own Zosia Vanat. Hi Zosia. Hello. You're not just going to supply us with information, you have also supplied us with some music. So our listeners uh, will hear some campaign ads and um, songs as we talk through the, the, election. the
1: election.
3: So maybe just to start, it's a presidential election. So how important is the presidency as a, as a position? You know, what's at stake in terms of the election on Sunday?
4: president in Poland doesn't have a lot of power when it comes to coming up with new legislation. But still, he has the power of veto, which is actually very important in this election. Because as you probably know, for now, the Law and Justice Party, who has been in power for the last five years, they've been responsible for all the process of making the law in Poland. So they have the government, they have the majority in the parliament. And for now, they also have president who usually doesn't veto the law they propose. So the real question in in this election is whether the new president who is going to be elected in the election is going to continue this practice, so basically allow the law and justice to continue with all their reforms, or maybe a new president is going to stop the changes and stop the laws.
3: Right so this is actually very important for law and justice to keep hold of this office right because if if it goes into the hands of, of a member of the opposition then uh, suddenly things get a lot more more difficult for them even though as you say this is not the the principal figure so let's just have a look at the the key candidates and um, we can start I think we can probably hear a little bit of
5: the incumbent uh, Andrei Buda Tell us a bit
3: about him, apart from his talent for kind of light rap.
4: Sure. So yes, so the incumbent president, Andrei Duda, is still the front runner in the election. For the last five years, he is sort of the face of many of the law and justice uh, reforms. And this is also something that he's trying to sell in this campaign. He is telling his voters that without him in the office, the law and justice won't be as effective as it is right now. So obviously from the Brussels perspective, when we think about the law and justice reforms, we usually think, you know, about the rule of law, for example, which has been criticised by the European Commission. But this is not uh, what the majority of the voters in Poland see. We have to remember that the law and justice has proposed many reforms when it comes to, for example, the social policies, the financial handouts for children, for for school children, for for farmers. And People in Poland really appreciate that and they really love Andrzej Duda for that. Uh, He has really been this small town, countryside Poland candidate. He's also a very skilled campaigner. He has been going a lot to, you know, all those like little villages and little Polish towns, shaking hands, taking selfies, dancing with, with the people. And yes, this is why for a long time he was like the most trusted politician in Poland. And also this is one of the reasons why he still has around 40% of support in this election.
3: Okay, and uh, does he face one particular main challenger or, or are there more who could kind of, you know, give him a run for his money?
4: His main political opponent right now is Rafał Czaskowski, who is the candidate of the biggest opposition party Uh, the civic platform. So Trzaskowski only entered the race several weeks ago because the civic platform sort of used the situation, the fact that the election in Poland uh, was postponed and uh, they changed their candidates. Their previous candidate was polling really badly. So they decided to exchange her with Rafał Trzaskowski. Trzaskowski is like a complete opposition of Duda. He's the uh, mayor of Warsaw currently And he's like this typical big city candidate. Uh, He graduated for those really good universities, speaks five languages
0: fluently. We would like to leave the decision in the hands of the people.
4: And we were
0: actually
5: negotiating...
0: He used to
4: be uh, the Minister of uh, the European Affairs. He used to be the MEP as well. He sort of pictures himself as this liberal, democratic, pro-European candidate. Interestingly, he hasn't presented his manifesto yet, so we don't really know what he's proposing to his voters, and we are like three days away from the election. But it seems that for many polls it is sort of enough that he says that he will stop whatever the law and justice is doing. And this is still very appealing to the large number of voters.
3: President Duda, of course, was at the White House this week uh, seeing Donald Trump. Is that uh, an advantage for him in in the campaign? You know, in in a lot of Europe, obviously, appearing alongside Donald Trump would not be, you know, considered a campaign advantage, but, but could it be an advantage for him in Poland?
4: Well, to be fair, this is really hard to say right now, because this visit was supposed to be this big game changer in the campaign. People were talking that Duda would bring back home like 1000 new American soldiers, that they would have new energy deals. Some were even talking that he would sign a deal about the nuclear weapon. I mean, that was really, really big. And I would say that the press conference of President Trump and President Duda on Wednesday could have been a big disappointment to all these people who had those very high expectations, because actually Duda is not coming back home with anything concrete.
1: uh, They asked us if we would send some additional troops. Uh, They're going to pay for that. They'll be paying for the sending of additional troops and we'll probably be moving them from Germany uh, to Poland. Uh, we're going to be reducing Germany. And
4: well, it's it's still too soon to see how this will be reflected in the polls, but my guess would be it won't make as a big change as President Duda hoped it would.
3: So. What do the polls show in terms of, you know, who's going to get what on Sunday? And what happens if nobody gets an outright majority in the first round on Sunday?
4: Yes, so the current polls show that Duda is still winning. Uh, He should get around 40% of support. And then Trzaskowski is on the second place, getting around 27, up to 30% of support, depending on different polls. But that means that none of the candidates get more than 50%, which is necessary to sort of win the election in the first round. And that means that there will be the second round of the elections, which is scheduled out for July the 12th in two weeks time.
3: Okay. well, we'll see how it all pans out and uh, no doubt check in with you uh, again, uh, assuming that we get to a second round. Uh, Thanks very much, Sosia.
4: Thank you. Now, last
3: week, our mobility reporters Joshua Pozanner and Hannah Coquilair caught up with the EU's commissioner in charge of transport, Adina Valian. She's no stranger to Brussels, but for those of you who are not so familiar with the Romanian politician, we thought we'd start off with a bit about her background, get her to tell us a bit about how she got here after serving in the European Parliament before making the jump to the Commission. So let's hear that part of the interview first before we get down to the nitty gritty of policy and the coronavirus crisis.
2: This is um, probably, I have to fight with myself of um, being less a member of the European Parliament and more a member of the European Commission, because I have been a member of the Parliament for so many years, in European Parliament since uh, 2007, and before that in the National Parliament. So I have my mindset as a representative, while in the Commission, of course, you are part of a college and you have executive powers. And then uh, well I'm sometimes uh, reflecting on uh, how I used to see the commissioners and uh, now that being a commissioner I would say there is a difference from uh, uh being a commissioner and how you see as a member of the parliament uh, a member of the commission so yeah it's a new world
1: Do you see the European commission in a new light Exactly <laughs> In what way
2: Well um I don't know um well, to give you an example, with this thing with the passenger's rights, uh, for example, a member of the parliament would say, uh, and I'm calling on the commissioner to make sure that uh, the rights of the passengers are respected. Yeah? Okay. Now, as a commissioner, what you do? You have to make sure yourself, because you want to do that, <laughs> uh, that the legislation is respected then you have to put pressure on the companies and you have to put pressure on the member states. So it's... More complex than I imagined, because you have more stakeholders to, to bring together in order to achieve a good result.
1: And how did you get into politics in the first place?
2: Well, I ran, um, I ran for um, to be a member of the national parliament back in two thousand and four. I was coming from um, a civil society. I specialized in um, politics. Even though before that, I used to be a teacher of mathematics. So, yeah, well, Romania back to, uh, after 1990, it was an interesting um, place for new beginnings. Because when we started after the um, revolution against the communists, actually, there was no such thing as a civil society. There were no parties. So everything was at a new beginning. So to be in politics and uh, yeah, it became very, very interesting and uh, active in the society. It was very, very extraordinary. <laughs> so uh, being a mathematician, uh, I got passionate by how to solve problems in my society. And then I ran for the parliament. So I was a member of the national parliament before coming to the European one. Do you
1: feel that now in the European Commission, on the EU level, you could see as much dynamism, as much movement as back then in Romania when you got started?
2: Well, uh, nothing can replace the passion I had then. Because imagine in the European Commission, you don't uh, fight for freedom. In Romania, back in 1990s, uh, the word which was the most important for us was freedom. So you are fighting for your freedom. You are fighting for your rights. Uh, It was very, very new and uh, extraordinary. Nowadays, of course, uh, you are fighting for uh, the success of uh, European way of life. You are working for uh, a better economy, for the competitiveness of your industry, for uh, a sustainable transport. Uh, Yeah. So you see, you cannot compare. (laughs)
1: and on transport is that uh, a new subject for you or did you previously work on that
2: it's interesting because everything uh, it's closing the circle in a way uh, in the european parliament i was focused a lot on the industry issues i was part of industry committee and before coming to the commission actually i was uh, chairman of uh, industry committee and before being a chairman of industry committee i was the chairman of um, environment committee so i would say that my experience in the environment committee working with climate issues participating in cops uh, engaging with um, industry engaging with uh, ngos engaging with other countries for paris agreement for um, circular economy all this is very much helping me to uh, have a view on what it needs to be done for transport to become more sustainable and being a chairman and working a lot in industry committee with companies and stakeholders including on I don't know emission for cars or uh, digitalization because I I was working a lot on uh, digital issues also uh, will help me very much for smartening the transport so I would say now I can uh, integrate all uh, my work from environment and industry into transport sector and uh, I think uh, this is an advantage
5: and just uh, on actually your transition between the Parliament and the Commission, this was also very interesting. Like your predecessor, Violetta Boltz, you, you weren't always in line to take the Commissioner post and then things moved very, very quickly. So it, did it take you a long time to decide to make this switch?
2: Well, uh, to be honest, I was always very happy to be a member of the European Parliament. I felt myself very well in that capacity. But of course, if you are offered, and it was a bit taken by surprise, I was not um, applying for the job of commissioner. I was a bit taken by surprise by the offer. But of course, it's a new challenge, I thought, like uh, one minute. And I said, OK, if you want to propose me and I will be accepted, why not? <laughs> a new challenge.
3: Now, Josh and Hannah, of course, also discussed Valiant's role in the coronavirus crisis as the commissioner in charge of transport.
2: I was in the middle of the crisis um, the response team of the European Commission. Uh, we were, as everyone, taken by surprise at the beginning with uh, the developments of uh, the pandemic. Uh, I think no one foresaw this um, happening. And uh, immediately, President von der Leyen she decided to establish this response team, and uh, transports were a part of it. I mean, uh, who would have known that uh, frontiers will be shut down and um, we'll have uh, tens of kilometres of uh, trucks trying to move across a frontier. But uh, I think we did well in the end. It's also because the member states understood that we need to have a coordination approach and uh, we were able to establish the green corridors so that we um, will uh, diminish the disruption in the supply chains and we could kept the freight uh, going um, across borders and uh, we could keep the transport workers working because we put very soon uh, very important uh, measures uh, for their uh, health and safety all those queues of kilometres at the border, meaning that drivers would stay in a parking lot together to discuss what's going on. This was also, we we have seen it, uh, we were desperate because it could have been a health situation and uh, we desperately needed all um, the transport workers to be able to perform their duties in order to Mm. keep the wheels turning.
5: (laughs) Uh, We published some data last week about uh, the proportion of residents of 21 major European cities who were asking for, or said they would at least prefer, uh, certain changes in cities, i.e. reduced cars, more more room for cyclists, less pollution caused by fewer cars. They would like these changes to stay. Now, you yourself and your team are, are drafting, obviously, a urban mobility strategy that will come out at the end of the year. Do you agree with these citizens that actually fewer cars and more space for bikes and walking is 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 one change from the pandemic that, that should stay
2: well i think we all have experienced this new world of um, less congestion and uh, who is there not to like this world of less congestion so i myself i totally i am um, sympathetic and uh, of course I would like to have cities in which the air has a better quality and uh, there are ways to achieve that, not necessarily by um, reducing the number of cars, but I think uh, we have also to look at European level at different cultures because um, it's obvious that there are countries which developed in time a culture of um, green mobility and there are others who are not necessarily very much into this um, new kind of uh, new world. And us as um, European Commission and us in Brussels, we have to look beyond the the gates of the city and uh, look to everyone what uh, they need and what uh, they would like. And uh, the urban mobility will be part of uh, the strategy, a broader one, which I'm determined to present by the end of the year on sustainable and smart mobility. I would add, and also resilient. So we have to um, keep uh, our business on track for the end of the year because uh, as a lot of people were saying, uh, this uh, crisis, it's also an opportunity to develop a new kind of mobility to become more resilient, more sustainable, more intelligent
5: and just obviously to, to cover the pandemic, we, we can't leave out airlines because the, this was a huge sore point um, is now and was in the early weeks of the crisis too. You held very firm on the issue of refunds uh, and not not allowing airlines the right and countries the right to briefly exempt themselves from the requirement to offer cash and not just vouchers. Do you see that this, this battle has been won now for the Commission against the, the member states?
2: I don't want to see myself in a battle with no part of uh, the transport environment, especially with the airlines. But uh, I think it was just fair because we step immediately in the crisis to help liquidity problem of the companies, we put forward uh, for the slots regulation to ease up uh, the obligations. Um, We immediately um, relaxed the requirements in state aid regulation to allow member states to step in and help with liquidities. By the other hand, uh, it was just fair for the passengers. And I think it, it was really a good thing for the companies themselves. Because now, With all the issues and all the problems with um, the sector being so much impacted by the fact that people mm, are not that eager to restart uh, moving uh, at the same levels as uh, before, it is also a matter of trust. So how are you going to trust to buy yourself a ticket? if you know that uh, the contract you are signing with the company when you are buying the ticket is not going to be probably respected. So I think it was the right choice we have made uh, because we were asked by several member states and uh, of course by almost all the companies to give up on the European regulation on uh, reimbursement and I think it was the right thing to do. Maybe they don't see it now, but I think in the long run it was the right thing to do for the companies also.
3: Thanks to Josh and Hannah for bringing us that discussion. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. We encourage you to take a moment right now, if you can, to rate the podcast by clicking some stars and leaving a review. Thanks, by the way, for some very nice reviews lately. We do read them all and we appreciate them. You can also always reach us directly by email. The address is podcast at politico.eu. We'll be back next week. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to producer Christina Gonzalez, and thanks to you for listening.